This episode is brought to you by Squarespace. Start building your website today at squarespace.com. Enter our offer code STUFF at checkout to get 10% off. Squarespace, build it beautiful. Welcome to Stuff You Should Know from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark. There's Charles F. Chuck Bryan. There's Jerry. And uh, this is Stuff You Should Know. You introed as if you were asleep, and I just walked by and poked you with a full <laughs> cue. <laughs> and that's your first thing you do is you wake up and just go, hey, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, that's what I do. Uh, how are you, sir? Man, I'm feeling fine. Yeah? Yeah. Good. Feeling fine. That's a Simpsons reference. From what? The Shining one. Oh, yeah, The Shining. Uh-huh. Classic. It's a good one. Um, so, a couple of quick matters of business. Okay. A little COA at the beginning. Yes. We're talking about freak shows. Right. And we will be saying freaks and things like that. Yeah. That is obviously an antiquated term. Yes. Um, but a lot of, there are a lot of quotes in here and a lot of references to, uh, freaks and midgets and pinheads and all these awful terms. Right. That they used to call these people that had, you know, physical deformities and maladies. Right. Um, so it's not us speaking. This is a historic, in, in historical context. Yeah. Like we get the insensitivity. Yeah. Right, and so we're not, not we're not we're not being insensitive here. Of course not. Yeah. Uh and we want to shout out a few uh we used a couple of House Turf uh House Turf Works, House Stuff Works articles, uh as well as one from History Magazine by Laura Grande. Uh Priceonomics, Zachary Crockett wrote one and uh, Yeah, who I have to say I'm a fan of that dude's work. Yeah, it was a good article. Um, Priceonomics he's written some really interesting articles. Agreed. Uh and then one from humanmarvels.com, which is just a good website. Uh by Jay Tithonus Pidnow. I know that's not <laughs> pronounced right. P-E-D-N-A-U-D. Yeah, that's a tough one. Pidnow? Yeah. I assume the D is silent. Yeah. And or maybe not. Maybe it's Pednowd. 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 Huh. Freaky. And a couple of other places we visited. So, And everyone kind of says the same thing, but it's a nice, well-rounded uh, thing, I think. Yeah. Well, there, I mean, we're talking about the history of freak shows and there's only, you know, one history. Yeah. Certain things happen. And we found, <laughs> we found very quickly that like you can't extract, um, freak shows from PT Barnum or vice versa. No. Like they, they, they are inextricably bound. But freak shows, um, you know, Barnum was working in the 19th century, but the concept of freak shows, which, um, is basically someone, who is a human curiosity, and that could be someone who was born with a genetic deformity, a yeah. physical deformity, um, some sort of mental incapacity, um, or some people uh, have turned themselves into human curiosity, say through the the wonder of tattooing or sure. um, s- learning to swallow swords or something like that. Yeah, or like these days, uh, body modification, uh, like the Jim Rose right. show. Or there's one in Coney Island still that does a, a like a traditional show. Yeah, Side Show by the Seashore. Right. Also a great song by Luna. Nice. One of my favorite bands. Um, so the, the whole concept of this, of having a human curiosity and... Um, Basically charging gawkers to look at it, it, it dates back quite a ways. Um, 
Well, actually, not that far. The 16th century. <laughs> That's pretty far. Yeah, I guess so, but you would think like, well, the Greeks or the Romans did this. But apparently, no, everybody was fairly... Um, I, from what I understand, everybody just kind of steered clear of human curiosities to that point. Yeah, I think people feared them. Right. They were locked away mainly because uh, they thought it was some evil curse. Or punishment from God. Yeah. And this wasn't someone you wanted to consort with, else you might bring back, bring down the wrath of God upon yourself. That's right. But uh, like you said, in the late 1500s, people started to say, you know what? I'm curious about... Um, Someone with hair growing all over their face. I'm curious about the human curiosity. Exactly. And I know I don't Chuck, I want to say I don't think it's coincidence that about this time science was starting to spread throughout Europe. Oh sure. So the idea that um this was God's wrath was was taking a bit of a backseat to uh this is a, a human condition of some sort. Yes, but not so far down the road of science to where there was this intermediate period where they were gawked at. Right. And as we'll find out later, science would eventually take part in ending the sideshows. Right. It created them and it ended them. Yeah. It's kind of neat. Good way to look at it. Uh, so one of the first um, uh, viewings or one of the first people uh, put on display, and, you know, this is also going to be, we'll, we'll get into it later, but the morality of this is very up and down with exploiting people. Yeah. And these people that would normally be locked away actually having super lucrative careers. Sure. Long-lasting made them rich. Well, plus in, in many also, um, I think one of the authors, I think it was Crockett, points out that um, there, early on, if you were in a freak show, there was a good chance that um, you had been abandoned by your parents. Oh yeah, became a ward of the state and adopted by somebody who just ruthlessly exploited you. Yeah, and maybe barely took care of you. Yeah, but one thing you can definitely say to his credit, as Barnum came into it and basically. N- normalized or created an industry out of freak shows or for freak shows, um, conditions definitely changed and the exploitation seems to have lessened somewhat. Yeah, I think in the, with the big names like uh, Norman and Barnum, uh, I think there were all manner of uh, minor sideshows that probably didn't treat them as well. Right. Uh, and usually Barnum and Norman bought their curiosities from those minor sideshows. Lesser True. showmen. Exactly. So we're talking about Tom Norman out of England. Yeah, they were basically counterparts. Yeah, and we'll, we'll get into them. But okay. uh, back to one of the earliest, um, quote-unquote, freaks was uh, a man named Lazarus Colorado, not Colorado, uh, who was a conjoined twin. He had a brother, uh, Johannes, mm-hmm. who was upside down on his chest. And technically he was a parasitic twin to uh, Lazarus. Oh, not conjoined twins? They were conjoined, but uh, Johannes like didn't eat. Oh, okay. He um he could he didn't speak. It, he never opened his eyes, and apparently the only way you could get a physical reaction out of him was if you rubbed his chest. It would make him squirm, like Quaid in Total Recall. Very much. Gotcha. So uh, he went on tour, um, performed before King Charles the first in the early 1640s, uh, but it was not a big deal. It wasn't a super lucrative. Uh, sideshows weren't really a thing at that point. Still. No, but this guy was saying, uh, you guys are going to ostracize me? Well, I'm going to charge you to look at me then, and I'm going to support myself and my brother doing this. Yep. So he did it himself. It's not clear whether he worked with a manager or not, or a promoter, but he definitely um, made his own choice to go do this. Yes, exactly. And he was apparently an otherwise handsome man. Yeah. That's how everyone described him. Right. Which I think probably for the court... 
um, or Europe who, who came and looked at him, uh, probably just made it even more mind boggling, you know, but he's sure. such a good guy. Right, right. You know, uh, PT Barnum. And I think we should do an, a whole podcast on PT Barnum at some point. Okay. To really close out the circus suite. Well, then we shouldn't mention him again. In this show? <laughs> no. Uh, Barnum, uh, as a, as a teenager, uh, he always had a penchant for making money. He was one of those magnets. Sort of weird ways. Uh, he ran a, his own lottery as a teenager, um, in Connecticut, and he said, here's what I'll do. I can just sell these tickets. I'll give out, uh, prizes in varying levels from, uh, $25 on down to like 25 cents. Sure. And, a, uh, a lottery. And, um, but it was very well thought out for a teenager. He wasn't just like, just one prize. He spread it out so he would entice people to play more. Right. Uh, and he actually made a lot of money from it until they outlawed the lottery. Yeah, he was making like 11 grand in today's dollars a week. As a teenager. As, yeah, 19. Not bad. <laughs> but then, uh, Connecticut and the rest of the country said, no, more lotteries for now. Um, we'll bring that back up later though. Don't you worry. <laughs> TBC. And, um, he had to uh, find other ways to make work. Moved to New York City, and in 1835, um, he had you know England is where a lot of this started. And we'll talk about Norman in a second. Yeah. But he got his cue from England. Said, "Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to buy a person. I'm going to buy my first freak, uh, this blind, paralyzed slave woman. And this is a hallmark of freak shows. Is I'm going to make up a story about her that's sensational and." Crazy, like a Ripley's Believe It or Not kind of thing. Right. And, and Barnum in particular was well known for just taking these things to the nth degree. Like, sure. No one's going to buy that, but he could sell it in such a way that people believed it because they were exponentially dumber back then. <laughs> uh, he, the story for her was that she was 160 years old, uh, was George Washington's nurse. Uh, and you can pay to see her, uh, when in fact she was only 80 years old. Mm-hmm. She was half that age. Yeah, and her, her, her name was Joyce Heth. Yeah, she was just an old lady, right? Yeah, she was an old slave woman who was paralyzed and blind and was being exploited by P.T. Barnum in the year before her death. That's right. So she dies, um, but before then, like uh, as he's touting her uh, as this 160-year-old former nursemaid to George Washington, um, that gets an initial reaction, and then ticket sales drop. And then P.T. Barnum did something quite smart. He wrote an anonymous letter to a Boston newspaper and accused himself of being a fraud and saying that the uh, the 160-year-old woman was a fake, that she was actually a machine, a robot made of <laughs> whale skin and wood, and ticket sales went right through the roof again. Man, what a guy. There should be a good movie about him. I can't believe there's not. Like a modern one. I'm sure there is, you know. Surely, like the what's the one? The greatest show on earth was a movie, right? And that like a D.W. Yeah. Griffith movie or something. Yeah, like that? that's what I mean. But like, Tom Cruise should play him. Yeah, and no, it should be directed by Michael Bay. Russell Crowe should. No, not Russell Crowe. Well, how about um, who could play P.T. Barnum? You know who who he would be good at it, but it'd just be so him, Sam Rockwell. Oh, totally. He, he could, could play anything. So I'd rather see somebody even broader playing him. Yeah. I, I heard recently. Oh, do you know? Oh, go ahead. No, what, you what, go ahead. You know who would end up playing him is is friggin' Hugh Jackman, and everyone oh, would just yeah. say, "Oh, oh God, man, of course. yeah," because he can do cartwheels. Yeah. What were you gonna say? 
I, somebody, it might have been during the Bill Gates interview or something yesterday that somebody said that, no, it was on CNN. Tom Hanks is the most trusted person in America. What? Like, for some poll found that, like, the most trusted person in America is Tom Hanks. Were we on the list? I don't think so. No. No. Sure, you gotta trust Tom Hanks. We're not even also Rands. We're never Rands. Alright, so, uh, he purchased that woman. What was her name? Joyce Heth. Joyce. J-O-I-C-E-H-E-T-H. Uh, for a thousand dollars, and he made about that every week, um, from exploiting her. I, I imagine that she got very little of that. Yeah. Although you can't necessarily say that. I didn't see what she was paid. True. She was very likely paid, and um, she was probably fairly well taken care of, uh, especially considering um, that she probably just, and this is based on how Barnum treated other people later yeah. in a documented manner, but um, he, he, I don't want to say he rescued her from slavery because she went from being a slave to being owned by somebody who exhibited her. Sure. Um, but it, it, it's not a guarantee or a given that her situation got worse after she she was purchased by um, Barnum. Right. Does that make sense? Yes. Man, that felt like a minefield I was talking <laughs> to. Talking about slavery, human exploitation, yeah. a blind woman uh-huh. who was also paralyzed. Yeah. Good. Good luck, sir. Um, his first big hoax after that, or... Uh, well, actually, I guess it wasn't a hoax aside from the made-up story, but um, he had a real hoax. Yeah, that in, was a hoax. Well, a hoax, sure. sure. Um, but this was a hoax in 1842 that, because it was nothing about it was real. He was promoting something called the Fiji Mermaid, mm-hmm. uh, which was basically rogue taxidermy is all it was. That's exactly what it was. It was a uh, creature with a head of a monkey and the tail of a fish yeah. that he bought from Japanese sailors. Well, he didn't. He got it from a sailor who bought it from Japanese. Oh, right. Sure. And actually, it was Japanese fishermen. Yeah, and he, well, what's the difference? Well, they're like traditional. They didn't necessarily go to sea. They were like islanders. Gotcha. And this is like traditional art for them, folk art. Okay. So not a sailor, but fisherman. Right. That's pedantry 101. Sorry, man. <laughs> uh, I get so fixated on things. Yeah. Uh, and he leased it um, for twelve fifty a week. $12.50. Right. Um, from, from the owners of said rogue taxidermy. And he tried, he printed up pamphlets and tried to convince everyone it was some real thing. So he, he actually had a, um, a partner named Levi, what was Levi's name? He's definitely an overlooked guy. Levi Lyman. Can you imagine like being P.T. Barnum's partner? Like, you'd never be in the spotlight, right? No way. So Levi Lyman posed as a English doctor, a scientist, who was in possession of this mermaid. And um, P.T. Barnum very publicly was trying to get his hands on the mermaid. And this guy was very publicly resisting him because it was a man of science and this was the real deal. Right. And it helped just convince everybody, including the newspapers, that, like, this is the genuine article. Man, just rubes. <laughs> a, a nation, a world of rubes, Yeah, it seems like. Uh, he ended up opening up a museum on Broadway in New York City in the 1840s. You know, sort of, you know, like a Ripley's Believe It or Not kind of thing. Curiosities and weird things. Yeah. Uh, it's, that was his stock and trade. Uh, and then we should talk about his counterpart in England. Um, Tom Norman? Yeah, Tommy Norman. <laughs> Tommy Norman. Uh, he was named the Silver King, and Barnum actually gave him that name, apparently, yeah. after meeting him. And he said, boy, what a... Huge silver 
showy silver watch you have there. You're the silver king. He goes, I am the silver king. I've been waiting my whole <laughs> life for somebody to notice. Exactly. So he was doing the same thing in England. Uh, and he, he actually, um, he toured with Joseph Merrick, the elephant man. Yeah. And he got, um, castigated by a lot of people saying you're exploiting this guy, mm-hmm. John Merrick. And, uh, is it John or Joseph? What did I say, John? Yeah, and it's, it's like an ongoing thing. Oh, is it? Yeah, I can't remember if it's... Well, let's find out. No, it's Joseph for sure. I just misspoke. Oh, sorry. Um, he was attacked in, uh, specifically in a memoir by Dr. Frederick Treves uh, called The Elephant Man and Other Reminiscences. Uh, and he shot back and he said, you know what? I haven't mistreated Merrick. I haven't abused him. Uh, he wasn't forced to do anything. And he said, in fact, the big majority of showmen are in the habit of treating their novelties as human beings and in a large number of cases as one of their own, not like beasts. Right. So, uh, you know, the, the morality battle was being waged even back then. Yeah. And I mean, uh, if you, you think about um, this time when people would go look at people who had physical deformities and pay for it. Yeah. Just look at them just standing there. You think... Well, the whole world was pretty evil and amoral sure. at the time. Not necessarily true. There's a um, a lot of people who railed against this stuff, like Frederick Treves, yeah. who was um, he was portrayed by uh, Anthony Hopkins, right? Isn't that him? Oh, I don't know. Yeah, he was in the Elephant Man, the movie. Oh, was he actually Merrick's doctor? Yes. Oh, okay, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, man, that movie. Oh, yeah, David Lynch. God, one of the best ever. Um, and then there was a an historian. Who at the time, I think in like the 1860s, he wrote, um, his name was Henry Mayhew, and in 1861, he was British, he wrote that, um, that these freak shows were nothing more than human degradation. And he said something that stuck out to me, Chuck. He said that the men who preside over these infamous places know too well the failings of their audience. And I think he really hit the nail on the head by, he wasn't accusing the showman, because I think he understood that most of these people were just under contract. Right. And he wasn't accusing uh, the people, the actual human curiosities, the freaks themselves. He was rightly placing the blame for all this on the observers, the gawkers. Right. Like if there wasn't a market for it, they wouldn't be doing it. Yeah. Like you're the one who is having the moral failing, who's paying to go see this person who may or may not be exploited. You don't know. Yeah. And uh, it's really on you, audience. Yeah. It's pretty... Uh, it's a lot of foresight for back then. I thought so too. So it's not like uh, the point was. It's not like everybody was just going along with this. People have had a problem with it basically the whole time. Right. Freak shows were around. Right. Uh, all right. Well, let's take a break and we'll talk a little bit more about um, the evolution of the sideshow right after this. <laughs> I brought my pencil. What's that? Oh, Van Halen. Give me something to write on, man. <laughs> I didn't get that at first. You, I'm impressed that you did get it. Yeah. Nice. Uh, that was from Van Halen's popular song, Hot for Teacher. Yeah, from 1984. <laughs> and we are now 1980s DJs. Right. 
so the the sideshows became a legitimate thing, a, a big way to make money. There were different kinds. Um, there was one called a ten and one show, which I believe the side so sideshow by the seashore is today. Whoa. I know. You did it. Through my missing tooth. Uh, and that is when you have 10 people on display on a platform at once and people just walk by and look at them. Yes. It's not like a performance. No. It's just there's a bearded lady, there's the dog face boy, there's the tattooed man. Right. And they're all just standing there. Yep. That's a 10 in one. Like, get your look, you yokel. Uh, they had things, and this was all to, to drum up more money. They would uh, advertise something as a adults only or a man only even performance. Right. Well, the men only performance frequently had a stripper. Well, sure. You know. Yeah. Um. Or stuff that they thought that were were just like a, a woman shouldn't see or children shouldn't see. I don't know if it was as much that as if it was to just trump up like, oh my god, it's so bad that a woman can't see lay her eyes upon it. I see. Um. I think it was all part of the the show. Uh. That's my feeling at least. Uh, one of the things that they displayed was something called a pickled punk, which is awful. It is <laughs> especially when you find out what it is. Yeah, it's an, uh, basically a an abnormal fetus in a formaldehyde in a jar. Yep. And you could go by and look at pickled punks and gawk at them for yeah. money. It, it's it's awful. <laughs> yeah, this is what, what people did, like on Saturday nights in Kansas. So, um. The, 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 usually the, the side shows or the freak shows, at first they were, you would be some enterprising entrepreneur in some small town and, uh, you would notice that a little youngster had, um, uh, a, a third leg. Okay. <laughs> and you, your thought was, I can really make some money with this kid. So sure. you'd go to their parents and you'd say, I will give you 20% of all of the earnings of your child if you let me take him on the road and he will stay in the finest hotels and wear the best clothes. And, yeah, as the human um, tripod. Exactly. Yeah. And uh, the, the, he will become famous and the world will love him. Uh, just let me handle it. I'm going to be his manager from now on. And the parents would very frequently, especially if they were poor, would say, that's great. Yeah. Do that. Give me some money up front, though, by the way. Yeah, especially because a lot of times some of these people were a burden on their family. Sure. Because of their health condition. Yep. So they were happy to be rid of them. It, it's all very sad. Okay, so that's how, uh, that's how it definitely started out. And then, and it went on like that, um, for a very long time as well. But once Barnum and Norman and some of the other guys, the big guys, came around, they would just basically keep an eye out for that kind of thing, or they would be approached right. by these guys who would essentially be middlemen, kind of like um, somebody who discovered a boy band selling their contract to a bigger record company. But this was with human curiosities, people with the third leg or hypertrichosis or what right. have you. Um, and then Barnum would take them and would, would just take whatever exaggerated origin story that they came with and just throw it out and come up with one ten times more. Yeah. Uh, and w- after uh, his... Uh, George Washington's nursemaid, Joyce Heth, died. Yeah, who was not George Washington's nursemaid. Right. He started looking around for uh, his next collaborator, if you could call him that. Um, and he found out that he had a distant cousin, a fifth cousin, um, named Charles Stratton, who had stopped growing uh, when he was about um, two years old. Yeah, he, he he never completely stopped. He grew very slowly. Yeah, he made it to like just over three feet, I think, by the time of his death. Yeah, he died at 45 of a stroke, and he was 3.35 feet tall. Um, 
but grew so slowly. I mean, he, you know, he was, he was General Tom Thumb, very famously. Right. Renamed General Tom Thumb by his half fifth, twice removed cousin, uh, PT. What, what does that stand for even? Paul Thomas Anderson Barnum. <laughs> Uh, so he said, you know what? This is great. Um, you are a small person and you're cute as a dickens. So let me dress you up in little adult suits and you, you're my new sidekick. Yeah. The, he, uh, he collaborated with the kid's dad and said, let's, um, let's make some money. Uh, and he, um, he, he taught him how to sing uh-huh. and dance. Yeah. Pretend he was Napoleon. Yeah. He did impressions. Uh, Cupid. He played Cupid sometimes. Sure. And then he told everybody that this little five-year-old kid was actually 11, which yeah. made it all the more astounding that he was that small. Which he didn't even need to do. No. And then for about the next like 15 or so years, um, turned Tom Thumb into what was essentially the first international celebrity. Oh, was he the first international celebrity? Pretty much. Wow. Yeah. Tom Thumb was a sensation yeah queen victoria was a huge fan met yeah. uh met with him twice two to at least twice um she apparently was really big into sideshows but tom thumb was her favorite um and he they they made so much money off of their first european tour that um barnum bought his museum with the proceeds is there anything grosser than the queen of england laughing at a small person imitating napoleon <laughs> For money, <laughs> she may have even known Napoleon like, at the time. Oh, I'm sure she. That probably made it all the funnier yeah. to her. Yeah, unbelievable. So, but he was he was a rich dude. He was paid uh, in today's dollars. Who Tom Thumb? Oh yeah, yeah. Over four thousand dollars a week, and uh, retired and lived the high life in New York City. Um. And, you know, he didn't feel like he was exploited. No, he uh, he actually got married. I saw that he had children, but I could, I only saw that one place. I didn't see it anywhere else. But he, he was married and actually um, right after the, the marriage was um, brought to the White House to hang out with uh, Abraham Lincoln and Mrs. Lincoln. Yeah, he had 20,000 people at his funeral. He, uh, he was, again, uh, he was a very big deal. Yeah. And from what I understand, at the end of the day, he shed his persona. He was just Charles Stratton. Uber wealthy, uh, little person. Yeah. Um, and when he was doing his show, he was Tom Thumb, who would dress up as Napoleon or whatever and take your money. Yeah. But, um, he, he and PT Barnum together really made a ton of cash. Tom Thumb was a little better at managing his cash than Barnum was because Barnum fell on hard times. A lot of people don't realize this, but he made some actually really bad investments over over time too yeah he invested a lot of his money initially back into his business which was smart right and uh, but a lot of times he would be like this is going to be a hit and it wouldn't be a hit he, he didn't have the midas touch necessarily and he fell on hard times more than once one of the times um tom thumb or charles stratton bailed him out oh really mm-hmm. i get the feeling barnum didn't know when to leave well enough alone <laughs> yeah you know yeah like he had a big thriving business and he just kept wanting to push it further and further sure Hugh Jackman, I'm telling you. Uh, so now we will talk about a couple of people um, who are afflicted with something. Uh, well, they were uh, microcephalic, which means that they have a, a cone-shaped head. It's smaller than normal-shaped head as well. Yes. Uh, if you've ever, if you're a Howard Stern fan, mm-hmm. then you know Beetlejuice. Mm-hmm. He has this condition, um, and he, they used to call them pinheads. Back in the day. Yes. Awful term. Right. 
Uh, and there were a couple of notable, I, I'm not even going to keep saying that, but a couple of notable people that performed um, in these freak shows. Uh, one was uh, Zip, William Henry Johnson, renamed Zip, Z-I-P. He's from New Jersey, born to newly freed slaves. And uh, when Barnum found him, he says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to make up the story that you uh, were found during a guerrilla expedition uh, near the Gambia River. I'm going to shave your head, except for a little ponytail tuft on top. I'm going to dress you in a suit of fur, and you get up on that stage and grunt like an animal. Yeah. He was paid a dollar a day at first to not talk, to grunt, and I guess to play the violin really badly. Yeah. I didn't get, was he paid a dollar a day to start? Okay. I thought that might have been part of the story. No. That he was, in fact, paid $100 a day. Later. Okay. He he became a very popular um, uh, freak, I guess. Yeah. The thing is, is um, he, uh, William Henry Johnson, was probably not microcephalic at all. Um, he, microcephalic, microcephalic is totally different. Yeah. Microcephalic, um, he actually, they think now that he had just like a, a slightly abnormally shaped head that was exaggerated by the haircut that they gave him. Oh, yeah? And that he actually had no diminished mental faculties once, what, what at all. And he was just pretending the whole time and not only fooling crowds, but he was also fooling promoters. Yeah, because that's one of the hallmarks of uh, that condition is I believe that usually it's accompanied by cognitive, uh, stunted cognitive development. Yeah, usually very severe. Yeah, but not in his case. He was super smart, and when he died, said, we fooled them all. Yeah, that's what his he, wife. No, it was his sister. Oh, his sister. On his deathbed. They were also married. <laughs> right. <laughs> not true. No. So he made a lot of money, too. He did. He apparently retired with millions. Um, a millionaire. So he's not the only... Um, Again, pinhead is what this specific type of freak was called. Man, I can't believe I just said that. This feels (laughs) so wrong. I know. Um, But there's a very... Maybe uh, sideshow performer. Okay. And Chuck, another very famous sideshow performer who uh, was also, I guess, technically uh, in the uh, under the umbrella of pinhead, Uh who actually was um, microcephalic, was uh, Schlitzy. Yes. Schlitzy's one of my favorite people of all time. Yes. Schlitzy, uh, they don't know for sure his real name, but um, they believe it's Simon Metz, mm-hmm. born in 1901 in the Bronx. And um, by all accounts, from everyone who ever met Schlitzy. Everyone. Loved Schlitzy, and he was a, a ray of sunshine yeah. and a nice, sweet, caring, kind-hearted man. Yes. Loved life. Anything that you would take for granted, um Schlitzy probably enjoyed the heck out of, and um, he was very frequently billed as a woman. Um, I think he was billed as an Aztec warrior at first, and then maybe even an Aztec woman, but he wore dresses all the time because he was incontinent, Yeah, and this just made it the whole thing easier. Yeah. Um, so he was billed as a woman for a very long time, and including in the movie um, Freaks, the Todd Browning movie from 1932. Uh, Schlitzy was in that. And Schlitzy actually has like this big scene that's like, has, he has a whole speaking, like a dialogue section. Oh, yeah. But to this day, no one has any clue what he says. Yeah, should we talk about Freaks now or take a break and then talk about it? Let's take a break. All right.
All right, so the movie Freaks. Uh, I've seen it. Have you? I saw it for the first time this morning. No way. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I, I saw it in college it. when Man, most people see it. It's <laughs> so good. Uh, yeah, it's a 1932 pre-code film. Uh, there was a, a time between 1929 when um, they started making movies to 1934 when the motion picture production code kicked in. The Hayes Code. Uh, yeah, and properly called the Hayes Code. Um, for five years there, you could do whatever you wanted, I guess. Yeah. And, uh, that's when this director named Todd Browning made a movie called Freaks about sideshow performers. And this guy was, uh, he actually ran away. The, the director actually ran away and joined the carnival when he was 16 mm-hmm. and worked as a carnival barker and even, uh, participated in stunts and he was he's a circus guy right and he had a lot of um sideshow performers as friends and you can tell in the movie that that's he's like that's who he's whose side he's on yeah that's who that they're the heroes of the story yeah, they're the, the uh uh-huh. the protagonists the yeah. antagonists or normals or whatever right um and uh it's a really morally fraught movie these days but sure. if you just step back and and think of it as like this guy s- having an affinity for sideshow performers and giving them a shot at at stardom yeah being on the big screen for what they are for who they are for what they can do um then it's a really kind of a um heart-growing tale okay <laughs> heart-growing yeah in a, in a very weird way Interesting. It's it's wrenching to watch. When's the last time you saw it? College? Uh, yeah. It's been a long time. You should see it again. All right, I'll check it out. Like it's it's tough to watch. It's gut wrenching. Uh, there are a lot of um. Well, let's just talk about some of the performers in the movie. Um, one of them who stands out is Johnny Eck, uh, John Eckhart Jr., who was a twin, and he was born with a condition. Uh, everyone said that he was cut off at the waist. Mm-hmm. Uh, not exactly true. He actually had. Um, unusable, underdeveloped legs that you never saw, mm. but it appeared as though he didn't have anything from the torso down. Right. And as from a young kid, I believe he was even walking on his hands before his twin brother was even standing. Oh, really? So he was very advanced in a lot of ways. A very smart guy. Oh, he's a, he's a painter. Uh, yeah, very accomplished. A magician. Uh huh. Um, and he had a great personality too. You could tell. Yeah, and apparently he was good buddies with um, Browning. And Browning always wanted him around and by his side and was like, you know, you need to come sit with me by the camera. Uh-huh. And uh, almost like his, uh, I don't know if he like could consider him a co-director, but he always wanted him nearby. Huh. Pretty neat. Yeah. Uh, Daisy and Violet Hilton. Yeah, conjoined twins, right? Yeah, which they called Siamese twins back in the day. Um, Thanks to Chang and Ang Bunker, right? Yeah, they were actually... Uh, some of the first super famous, uh, they're from a Siamese fishing village, mm-hmm. and that's where the term came from. Yeah, Siam was what we now call Thailand. That's right. Uh, and Chang and Ng were born in 19, I'm sorry, 1811, and they actually performed on their own for many years. Yeah. Made a ton of money. Right. The, got married, had kids. Moved to North Carolina. Yeah, of all places. And, um, that, well, actually, interestingly, uh, Daisy and Violet ended up in North Carolina, too. Huh. Oh, yeah, but under much, much worse conditions. Yeah, but um, to finish with Chang and Ng, they um, 
eventually lost their money. They were millionaires, lost their dough, and then wor- worked for Barnum later on in life. But I get the impression that they did it kind of like at their leisure almost and ended up reamassing another fortune oh, interesting. from working with Barnum. Yeah, and they fathered 21 children between them, married a pair of sisters. Man, who were not conjoined. Yeah. They each had a house, and they would spend three days at one house, three days at the next house. Um, and yeah, they had 21 kids. Pretty amazing. Yeah. So, uh, Daisy and, uh, Violet Hilton, they were known as Siamese twins back then. Of course, uh, we don't use that term anymore. But I mean, I remember that term when I was a kid. Sure. So it's definitely, like, held on for way too long. Mm-hmm. Remember Ronnie and Donnie Galleon? Oh, yeah. Are they still with us? Let's find out. Well, you're, you're checking that. (laughs) I'll continue. Um, I believe that, uh, that Browning spotted Daisy and Violet and said, you guys are great. You're pretty. You can sing. You'll be a big, uh, part of my movie. And they, they had been performers all along. Um, by 18, they were on tour with Bob Hope as part of his dance troupe and made quite a bit of money. Um, but sadly, their story, ends in North Carolina because they made an appearance in 1961 at a midnight showing of Freaks at a drive-in, mm-hmm. and their manager ditched them. And at this part I don't get. They had no way to leave North Carolina, so they just stayed there? Yeah, they had to get a job. That just seems odd to me. If you don't have any money and no one to call to ask for money, you go get a job at a grocery store and hope that you can live. And eventually die there? Yeah. It seems like they would have gotten enough money to leave and go back to wherever they lived. Well, they died in Charlotte, North Carolina, of the Hong Kong flu. What is that? It was a flu epidemic. Jeez. That originated in Hong Kong. It was a different world back then. Siamese twins died of Hong Kong flu. I know. None of that seems politically correct to no, say. No, <laughs> it doesn't. Uh, who else was in Freaks? Uh, let's see. Um, there were a pair of uh, little people named Harry and Daisy Earls, and they played Hans and Frida, right? Yeah. And Hans is like the ringmaster of the sideshow. And um, Frida, in real life, Daisy, was known as the Midget Mae West. Um, and in the movie, they're engaged, but actually in real life, they were a brother and sister. Yeah, and they were in The Wizard of Oz, even, as uh, munchkins, and were in a bunch of movies with Laurel and Hardy as well. So lifelong performers. Yep. So the the whole this whole movie, and again, um, we kind of we didn't finish with uh, Schlitzy. Schlitzy was in it too, and had this whole big speaking part. Um, and was just adorable in the movie. Yeah, you could, like Schlitzy's personality just shines right through the movie. Yeah, very likable. Yeah, and um, Schlitzy was actually uh, adopted. There, no one had any idea who. Schlitzy's biological family was. Right. They were not around. So the, um, the, the people he performed with and, uh, worked for actually took care of him. And when his adopted father died, his father's daughter, biological daughter said, Hey, Schlitzy, um, I'm going to commit you to an asylum in Los Angeles. Yeah. And that's where Schlitzy was until one day, just by total chance, Chuck, uh, a another circus performer, I think a sword swallower, right? Yeah, named Bill Unks. Bill. He said, I, you're Schlitzy. Yeah, what are you doing here? You look so sad. And Schlitzy was like, I remember you. Let's go. So Bill Unk intervened and got Schlitzy out of the institution 
and uh, he got to live out his days hanging out in the park, being recognized by passersby. Yeah, he lived uh, near MacArthur Park in downtown L.A. Mm-hmm. and uh, lived all the way up until 1971. Yeah, at age 71. Yeah, so you know, you you got to see Schlitzy. You should see Freaks, but even if you don't see Freaks, like look up Schlitzy's part. Agreed. It'll probably make you want to see Freaks. So, Chuck, um, the Freak Show is, well, some people say that it's still around and that it's just on TV in the form of <laughs> reality shows. Yeah. Like basically that same sentiment and everything still is found all over television. Yeah, exploiting uh, people, like uh, exploiting obesity and exploiting dwarfism. and Sure. Uh, yeah, it's on television now. Um, but the actual f- sideshow itself, um, it's well, it, it went away in a lot of ways, at least as far as like a traveling sideshow went. And it went away with the rise of um, the rights for the disabled, that that, uh, that movement that came along in the starting in about the like late 19th century, early 20th century, and then really gaining steam by about the time Freaks came around the movie. Yeah, there were a few things that kind of killed it. Um, but one was definitely, like you said, science invented it and killed it as, and here's something that, uh, is sort of reprehensible that I found out is that a lot of these, uh, uh, sideshows would try and keep doctors away from the people. Yeah. Because they thought, I don't want a doctor coming in here and saying that the dog face boy actually has hypertrichosis. Yeah. And, because- and it's a condition where you have hair all over your face. Yeah. Because I told everybody he was a uh, a cave caveman. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Did you know? Actually, there was another. Uh, there was a woman um, named Julia Pastrana, and she had hypertrichosis too. And she ended up marrying her manager. They were married. They had a baby together, and she died during childbirth. and And the baby was born stillborn. And her husband manager, who ostensibly loved her, said. Show must go on. Yeah. So he mummified his wife and their stillborn baby, and then took them around to display them. Wow. In the sideshow, as ever. Unbelievable. So uh, again, doctors would come along and start explaining these things, and that helped kill the sideshow. Mm-hmm. Uh, the rise of television and uh, you know at home entertainment meant people weren't going out uh, to places like sideshows anymore. <clears throat> yeah. They could stay in their house and watch television. And apparently you could still find sideshows like that American horror story. Was it freak show? I think so. Last season or whatever. Yeah. I don't watch that, but yeah. Um, it was set in, I think the fifties. And I think at that time you could still see, you know, traveling sideshows here or there, but they were pretty broken down. Oh yeah. By that point they were pretty, pretty much gone. But by the Sixties, there was a girl named Carol Browning, and she—I all I could find was that she had deformed arms and legs. I don't know what that means, but that was the description that was giving given of her. But she went to a sideshow in uh, when she visited the the carnival in North Carolina. I think she lived in Charlotte, no Raleigh. And Carol, what is it with North Carolina? Uh, it, that's where things <laughs> begin and end wow. with with uh, sideshows. Well, Carol, Carol Grant, I think was her name. Carol wrote a, uh, a letter to the Agricultural Commission. And the Agric- Agricultural Commission is in charge of sideshows at the time, at least in North Carolina, and said, yeah. this is wrong. Like, this is beyond wrong. I'm, I'm offended by this, and this, this should not be allowed to happen. And she actually sparked a national conversation about 
whether sideshows should be allowed to be around, even if performers wanted to be a part of them. And that was the final death knell of that conversation. But a lot of people came out and said, hey, you know what? These people, you you guys call them freaks, but you also empty your pockets to them. Right. And they're wealthy. They they enjoy the acclaim. They enjoy the money. Right. And um, it's actually you who has the problem. Right. And it it didn't have much of an effect. Sideshows went away. And a lot of the sideshow performers ended up going from being pretty wealthy or well-paid or having a steady income to um, being broke and yeah. ending up like being abandoned by their managers like Daisy yeah. and Violet. Yeah, it's a, a tricky ground. It is. It's pretty much sad all the way through. Yeah, you, I mean, except for can't. some success stories. Sure. And that makes the whole thing so morally ambiguous if you think about it. Like, it's just so easy to look from here and be like, you named your movie Freaks? Right. Uh, or you, you, you charge people to look at the elephant man? Yeah. But what about those people who said, I'm cool with this. I'm signing on for this. Yeah. I've this is making a lot me very wealthy. Sure. I'm happy. I've I've had all sorts of opportunities that weren't open to me before, and I love what I do. What do you do about that? Like you can't condemn it. It's not an easy black and white thing to 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 deal with. Yeah, it's called a moral ambiguity. You said it. That there have always been them, them, those, them moral ambiguities. <laughs> there all, always will be. Uh, you got anything else? No. Uh, if you want to know more about sideshows, freaks, that kind of thing. You can type those words into the search bar at HowStuffWorks.com. And since I said search bar, it's time for Listener Mail. Hey, before Listener Mail, what about Ronnie and Donnie? Oh, yeah. Uh, Ronnie and Donnie are alive. Awesome. They are 64 years old as of this past October, I think, 21st. And uh, they are the world's longest living conjoined twins. Wow. They're adorable, too. They're Ohioans, right, if I remember? I believe so, yeah. Very nice. And what, what documentary did we see on them or something? I can't remember, but we've, we've talked about them a lot over the years. Yeah. So that's that's great news. Yeah, but they're, they're uh, still at it. All right, so listener mail. I'm going to call this one uh, Quick Feedback on the Bill Gates Podcast. Oh, that is quick turnaround. Uh, hey, guys, my name is Brendan Cologne, pronounced like Cologne. Mm-hmm. And I'm a Ph.D. student at Harvard Medical School in Pamela Sh- Silver's lab uh, working on artificial photosynthesis. Shout out, Pamela Silver. How about that? I'm a longtime fan of the show and wanted to say what you guys did. Uh, you, did you did a great job covering re- renewable energy with Bill Gates. Uh, during the episode, there was a question about the current limitations of artificial photosynthetic systems. Uh, at present, the biggest issues are scalability the cost energy in producing the building materials, and the efficient extraction of produced fuels. Uh, these are standard engineering hurdles, but like Mr. Gates said, we can call him Bill, by the way. I don't think you can, Brendan. We can. But we can. Uh, these are standard engineering hurdles, but like Mr. Gates said, the final product needs to be viable. Uh, specifically, such a product would need to harvest and store more energy in the short term than what was required to build it, makes sense, and do so on the cheap. Uh, fortunately, biotechnology and photovoltaic technology is advancing at a breakneck pace, so the future of this technology looks bright. As new biochemistries are discovered, more products will be available for production, and one vision of this technology is a local and individualized production of chemicals on demand. Hope this helps. Feel free to reach out. Cheers, Brendan. Thanks, Brendan. Yeah. Brendan Cologne, pronounced Cologne. That's right. 
Uh, if you are an expert in something that we talk about, we love hearing feedback from people like you. You can tweet to us at SYSK Podcast. You can join us on Facebook.com slash Stuff You Should Know. You can send us an email to StuffPodcast at HowStuffWorks.com. And as always, join us at our home on the web, StuffYouShouldKnow.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 